turn to Galatians 5. And as you're going to Galatians 5, as we're going to uh, continue looking at the Holy Spirit in the present, I was reminded of one of my favorite stories about one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon. The steps to go up to his pulpit, there were 15 of them. And Charles Spurgeon had a habit on every step on his way up of saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It occurred to me, I only have two of them here. So I don't have as long, I have to rely on God's mercy. But his reason for that was the fact that he was so, so burdened that those who hear the word of God are enabled by the spirit of God to understand the gospel, to understand the word of God. And of course, that was very effective um, in his ministry as he uh, saw somewhere between 10 and 14,000 people come to faith in Christ under his preaching. And so... That's our cry tonight. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we began looking at the Holy Spirit in the present, specifically the work of the Spirit in our lives. And we just didn't have enough time to really finish everything, so we're going to continue tonight. And our home base began in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, And you recall that these spiritual blessings aren't spiritual in general as in having to do with spiritual things. They refer specifically to the blessings brought by the Holy Spirit, wrought by the Holy Spirit, given by the Holy Spirit, and they are blessings for every single believer in Christ. And so we began looking at these blessings, which really was uh, constituting kind of a journey through the Christian life. And this morning, we looked at a spiritual transformation, an inward manifestation, an official association, a paradise registration, and a worshipful illumination. And of course, uh, these represented the doctrines of regeneration, the doctrine of the indwelling, uh, the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, the doctrine of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and of course the doctrine of illumination. And so we'll continue this journey of the Christian life with a sixth blessing, and we'll call this one a visible recreation. A visible recreation. And here in Galatians 5, we receive instruction about the Spirit's work in your life. The Spirit of God causes what the New Testament calls spiritual fruit, outworking, the observable and noticeable results of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, and we're all certain of this, we still struggle with sin and even deception and falling prey to our own selfishness. But the true believer at his core is characterized by a recreation of your fallen nature into an ever-maturing Christ-like nature. And, And the New Testament credits the work of the Holy Spirit with this fruit, with this spiritual outworking. Now, the book of Galatians is essentially Paul's argument to the churches of Galatia, which had become legalistic. They had begun going down this road of having begun salvation in the spirit, and yet they were trying to continue their salvation in the flesh by means of man-made rules. And so in Galatians 5, he encourages them not to fall prey to this spiritual slavery. The churches were apparently trying to use rules and external controls to curb sinful temptations and excesses, and we're all tempted to do that. It just feels easier to make a big list of rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and maybe we'll be safe that way. But Paul tells them the real way to not gratify the desires of the flesh, Galatians five sixteen. But I say... 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And then he gives a long list of what those who are truly are in the flesh, those who are not saved, what they love, what they run to. In verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. His point is that salvation in Christ is found not in trying to desperately avoid those things, although the repentant person who is truly in Christ certainly turns away from all of those things. But his point instead is that with elegance and in a living and dynamic and organic fashion, instead, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness rather faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law and he gives what really is the entire strategy for living the christian life and he boils it down to one sentence how do you live the christian life verse 25 if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit and what is this well this is simply asking the question continually what would the holy spirit have me do What would the Holy Spirit have me do? Sometimes in biblical counseling, we like to ask the question, what would Satan have you do? Because that gives you a real clear understanding of your own temptations. What would Satan have you do? And it's interesting to me that very often people have an answer to that question faster than they have an answer to the question, uh, what would the Holy Spirit have me do? But really what it means to keep in step with the Spirit is asking that question. What would the Holy Spirit have me do? This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Romans 8, 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And of course, how do you set your minds on the things of the Spirit? We said this this morning, Colossians 3, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You set your minds on the things of the Spirit by knowing the word of God and hearing the word of God. Let me point something out. I think this is important for us. The fruit of the Spirit listed here, the fruits of the Spirit, are are not just internal ethical qualities. They're not qualities of the heart only, that you're internally more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, and so forth. And, And they can sound generally like internal qualities. But what's the context of Galatians 5? The context of Galatians 5 is the external behavior of the believer in Christ in the covenant community of faith in the church. In other words, these fruits of the Spirit deal with the corporate life of the body of Christ. How are you manifesting the fact that you have an internal reality of faith and the Holy Spirit is living very actively in you? And this totally makes sense because we've been all baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit And it only follows that in the body of Christ, we should behave as the Spirit would have us to. And in fact, after exhorting the Galatians that proper behavior toward one another is rooted in this fruit of the Spirit, in genuine believers having a softness with one another, a selflessness with one another, it goes right on to Galatians 6. 
And Galatians 6 gives a, a picture of what a group of believers who are living out the fruit of the Spirit look like. What they're actually doing. How this is manifested. And we'll just go through this very quickly. It's manifested, first of all, in helping one another to be righteous. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if ever, anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, watch your own life and help watch the lives of those around you and come alongside each other and and encourage toward righteousness and toward holiness. The fruit of the Spirit is manifested in holding each other up, helping each other. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That we're not here just for ourselves. We're here for one another. That's why we engage in body life. That's why we, we want you in small groups. We want you in part of men's ministry and women's ministry. We're here to bear one another's burdens and to be a part of each other's lives, to live life together. He tells us to not think yourself more important than others. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's where trouble in the church always starts, when somebody thinks he's something. Then trouble begins. He says to be faithful in the church. This is part of bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Be faithful, verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. In other words, the question is not, what is my church doing? The question is, what am I doing? And if we're all asking that question, then we can say, what is my church doing? Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is born out in giving generously to support the preached word. It shows where your heart is. Chapter 6, verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And then verses 7 and 8 give a warning that being stingy and giving shows someone potentially not being saved. Why is this? Well, because he can't think in eternal kingdom terms when it comes to his own resources. He has to hold on to everything himself. I have seen people who make six figures barely able to give a dollar because they just can't let go. And I have seen people who are barely able to feed their own families give generously and give until it hurts. Why, what's the difference between the two? The heart. The heart is the difference. He gives another lesson to endure even when good works are hard. To endure when good works are hard. Verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And then we see kind of a culmination of the fruit of the Spirit to take opportunities to love tangibly the people of God. Verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So all of these first 10 verses of Galatians 6, what is this equal? Well, it's, it's a fulfilled and a joyful Christian life in the church because you're living out the fruit of the Spirit. You're living out the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and and tenderness and self-control. You're living those things out with one another. It is the visible recreation of your very character at your core. And isn't that what the joy of being in the church is? Is that you get here what you don't get anywhere else? You don't go to your secular job and say, I just wish everybody here would walk in the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, you pray for that, but you don't expect it. But in the church, you have the right to expect it. 
that we treat one another in ways that are just so, so filled with grace and kindness and, and, and patience. Well, so far we've seen a spiritual transformation, an inward manifestation, an official association, a paradise registration, a worshipful illumination, a visible recreation. We continue our journey of the Christian life. The next blessing we'll call a loving representation. A loving representation. How invested is the Holy Spirit in you and in your life? Well, let's look at a very familiar passage, Romans chapter 8. Turn with me to Romans 8. And I'm sure you're very up on Romans 8. It's uh, one of the most cherished and comforting chapters in all of the Bible. And the two verses we're going to look at, I think, are among the most encouraging in the New Testament. Because here we see how the Holy Spirit provides loving representation to God the Father on your behalf. And this is, of course, our very comforting verses of Romans 8, 26 and 27. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, in the, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul says here, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What's the weakness that necessitates the Spirit coming to our aid? Well, it's, the weakness is in prayer. And while we may say we understand a lot of prayer, a lot about prayer, in a lot of ways it's very much a mystery, isn't it? We grasp that God is listening to us. But we wrestle with the inadequacy of not knowing exactly how to pray, not knowing exactly what to pray for. At certain points, we may suffer from a lack of faith. We may suffer from uncertainty when we feel like there's no power in our prayer. Have you ever been driving down the freeway and you suddenly realize you don't remember the last hour of driving? In the same way, sometimes you can be in prayer and a minute later, you don't remember that you have prayed, much less what you prayed. And so we're weak. Maybe it seems like that whatever we pray for, the opposite happens. Have you ever felt like that you're in a losing slump? That everything you pray for, the opposite happens and you even are tempted to think, maybe if I pray for what I don't want, God will do the other thing. No matter how long you've walked with the Lord, You don't always know how to pray. And even when you think you do know how to pray, you haven't covered all the bases. You don't know what you don't know. And so, unlike our prayers, which are frail and flawed and feeble, at times the Holy Spirit intercedes to the Father with such perfect intensity that Paul describes these prayers as groanings too deep for words. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit isn't physically groaning. The Spirit is spirit. But it is a clear picture to us. It's something that's incomprehensible. It's something that's deep, deep groanings. We can somewhat picture these groanings too deep for words in the example of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to the Father. And we should have such confidence in the prayers of the Holy Spirit. This is so comforting to us. Verse 27 says, The Spirit of God has desires on your behalf. And His desires are always according to the will of God the Father. 
And it says that God the Father searches the mind of the Spirit, so to speak, and, and is in communication within the triune God. The Spirit of God communicates perfect desires on your behalf to God the Father, which are perfectly known, fully known by God the Father. And so since the Holy Spirit prays according to the will of God perfectly, and God the Father knows exactly what the Holy Spirit is praying for, then the Spirit's prayers are always answered. Every time. The Holy Spirit comes to the aid of all of us who do not know how to pray as we ought. We don't know the perfect plan of God. We're baffled at times precisely what to pray for. And we think about the Apostle Paul who said in 2 Corinthians 12 that three times he asked the Lord to remove uh, this thorn in his flesh. And what was the answer? The answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, the answer was no. So if we insert what was happening with the Holy Spirit interceding with groans too deep for words, Paul was saying, would you please remove this thorn in the flesh? By the way, the thorn in the flesh wasn't a physical ailment. It was a person in the church that was a thorn to him. And so Paul says, please remove this thorn. And the Holy Spirit's prayer was, let this thorn teach him of grace and dependence. And the Spirit prayed perfectly and that prayer was answered. And the Lord Jesus himself told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. And Paul said, and here was the real answer to their prayer. Therefore, I will most gladly boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul prayed, let my weakness be taken away. The Spirit prayed, let his weakness be his strength. And that prayer was answered. The Spirit prays with an eternal, all-powerful intensity at a level we could never imagine. And so the Holy Spirit prays on your behalf exactly the right things with omnipotent intensity, with omniscient understanding, with omnisapient wisdom, with omnibenevolent love and compassion, So you ought to have great confidence that everything God does in response to the prayers of the Spirit will be perfect and will work out the will of God for your good in the end. And look what the next verse says. Romans 8, 28. Now this makes sense. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Why do all things work together for good? Why does the sovereignty of God interact with his will to bring about a perfect result for your life because the Spirit of God has been interceding with groanings too deep for words. You have a champion in the Holy Spirit backing and advocating for you. Now, if what you prayed for didn't happen, then you can rest assured that what the Spirit prayed for in the perfect will of God will happen, and that's always a better plan. Always better. If you're comparing your plan to God's plan, God always wins. God's plan is always better. Now here at Grace, we've spoken often of the mediating intercessory ministry of Christ. And I think we understand that. He's our official advocate before the Father in which Christ protects our salvation. In fact, right here in the same passage, look down at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And because of the intercession of Christ, we have the confidence that Paul has in the next verse, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the result of the intercession of Christ, of his intercession 
But the loving representation of the Spirit of God has a slightly different flavor and a different emphasis to it. The intercession of Christ gives us salvation confidence in the gospel, that the gospel is true, that you will never be separated from the love of Christ, that your salvation will continue on and on. But in a slightly different way, the intercession of the Spirit fulfills the function of giving this confidence, not so much in eternity, but giving this confidence to get out of bed tomorrow morning. To face a day that we know will be fraught with pain and disappointment. Once in a while we've asked the question, could you name five or ten days in your life that had literally zero pain or disappointment? You're pretty hard pressed to do that. Every day is filled with something. Isn't it great to wake up in the morning and say, praise God, something's going to disappoint me and hurt me today. Every day. Let me be as simplistic as we can about this. The intercession of Christ seems to fill the role of getting us to heaven while the intercession of the Holy Spirit fills the role of helping us on the way there. And so two different roles, and they both work together so beautifully. A loving representation. Well, we continue the journey of the Christian life with another blessing of the Spirit. We'll call this one an empowered occupation. An empowered occupation. Turn to Ephesians 4 and kind of our little Bible study we're doing tonight. Ephesians chapter 4 And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples and hundreds of followers in Galilee, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And he said in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so to the church has been given the task of building up the church. And to do so, when Christ sent the Holy Spirit, he gave gifts. He gave spiritual enablement. Speaking of these spiritual gifts, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And the purpose of these gifts um, is not for personal gratification. It's not for aggrandizement. It's not to show how spiritual I am. The purpose of the gifts is to build up the church both spiritually and numerically to grow the church of Jesus Christ uh, downward in depth and outward in breadth. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's for everyone's good. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel. Here's the purpose of the spiritual gifts in building up the church. Now let's talk about the spiritual gifts for a moment. We could categorize the spiritual gifts into four categories, and really they're just two combinations, or combinations of two variables, as you'll see very easily. Four categories, combinations of two variables. The first category we'll call the temporary gifts of men. The temporary gifts of men. Here in Ephesians 4, speaking of the ascension of Christ and the subsequent giving of the spiritual gifts, look with me at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And what are these gifts? They're gifts of men. They're people. Verse 11 tells us what these gifts are. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. 
Who are the temporary gifts of men? The temporary gifts of men would include the apostles and the prophets. How do we know this? Well, an apostle has specific qualifications. He has to have seen the resurrected Christ, and he had to be specifically, personally commissioned by Christ himself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 1, that he is an apostle because he's one who has seen Christ. You recall in Acts chapter 1, in choosing a replacement for Judas, Acts one twenty two gave the qualification that the replacement for Judas must have seen the resurrected Christ. So if somebody says today, I am an apostle, you should say, what gym do you belong to? Because you're in really good shape for somebody who's 2,000 years old. No more apostles. Anyone claiming to be apostle is claiming an office that's not rightly his and it's not even possible anymore. And what about prophets? Those who receive a revelatory word from God supernaturally. We don't need those either. And in fact, we're prohibited from trying to exercise the gift of prophecy at this time. We're prohibited from it. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 18, says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, how do people today try to get around this? Because if you're hearing a word from God, you should tack it on to the end of the book of Revelation. But Revelation says don't do that. The way people, theologians, try to get around this today is to say that there is a a lesser version or a lesser level of prophecy that isn't perfect, that's flawed. In the Old Testament, what were you to do with a man who gave flawed prophecies? He was to be stoned to death. Why would we say this is a word from God that's flawed? That makes no sense. Not to state the obvious, But why do we not need apostles? Why do we not need prophets? Because we have a Bible that begins at the beginning and ends at the end. It is complete. We hold in our hands the completed revelation of God. There's a second category of gifts. We'll call these permanent gifts of men. Permanent gifts of men. Ephesians 4.11 continues with evangelists, shepherds or pastors and teachers. Who are the evangelists? Those who spread the good news of the gospel. Now, some take this generally just as a specific gifting for spreading the gospel. But in reality, we're all called to do that. That's a calling to all of us. This is a a higher office than just any of us who maybe happen to like to hand out gospel tracts more than others do. It's, It's higher than that. An evangelist is more precisely someone who brings the gospel someplace the gospel has not been or someone who plants a brand new local church body. That is an evangelist. Paul was the prototypical evangelist going from city to city to city, proclaiming the gospel and leaving in his wake brand new churches all over the place. As a matter of fact, here at Grace Bible Church, we've based our whole philosophy of ministry for global missions on this understanding. We support church planters and people who train church planters. That's all we support because that's the true definition of an evangelist. What about the shepherds, the pastors? And the teachers, what are they given to do? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How do we understand the pastors and teachers? The teachers should be understood as a subset. 
all shepherds, all pastors are to be teachers. It's a qualification, in fact, in First Timothy 3. But not all teachers are authoritative shepherds in the church. And so teachers would be a subset. Now, unlike so much of pseudo-Christian culture, which views the pastors of the church with an air of uh, arrogance and even looking down on them, these are gifts to the church from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit's empowering. And I'll tell you what, I am so blessed to experience this here at Grace, but any local church that views their pastors as a gift from God, that is a healthy church. That is a church that's well on its way to being effective because they're in God's will. There's a third category of gifts. Again, with just the the two variables, we'll call this one temporary gifts of ability. Temporary gifts of ability. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but 1 Corinthians 12 lists these gifts. Things like discernment. And in this case, it's an ability to distinguish between the spirits. In other words, um, behind every teacher uh, would be, theoretically, a spirit of some sort. Either the Holy Spirit in a Christian or a demonic spirit in a false teacher. Now, why would the gift of discernment be very, very useful in a young church? Because they didn't know anything. And yet people with the gift of discernment could say, this guy is bogus. Watch out for his teaching. The gift of wisdom and knowledge. This is a revelatory gift closely related to prophecy. Knowing things from God that you didn't previously know. 1 Corinthians 12 lists the gift of faith. This isn't saving faith. We all have saving faith. But the miraculous power of God to perform signs and wonders. That this is somebody who can uh, would also operate in the gift of miracles and healings. The gift of miracles and healings were primarily to authenticate the message of the gospel, to confirm the messengers of the gospel. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 tells us this. And then, of course, you had the gift of tongues or human languages and the interpretation of these languages, the supernatural ability to speak in a human language that you've never learned, and Others having the ability to translate this. What a wonderful gift to spread the gospel like wildfire in a world with many different languages. And we said last week that the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues was sort of like the internet of the day. It was the, it was the wildfire communication of the gospel. But these gifts had a built-in expiration to them. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church of Jesus Christ was quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. The foundation doesn't get added to. The foundation doesn't continue. When the foundation is poured, it's done. It's finished. And the temporary miraculous gifts, according to Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, were specifically to authenticate the gospel and the messengers of the gospel prior to a completion of the New Testament. Then we have a fourth category of gifts, the permanent gifts of ability. The permanent gifts of ability. So there's only two variables, temporary or permanent, and men or abilities. And so these are the permanent gifts of ability. Romans 12 lists these, the gift of service. It's just a general helping gift in the church. That's the person that desires to just get things done, to do whatever needs to be done. The gift of teaching. This is an aptitude for communicating the truths of God's word. Saying you have the gift of teaching does not prove this. How do, you, uh, how do you know you have the gift of teaching? Because other people say you have it, not because you say you have it. The gift of exhortation. 
The gift of exhortation is an aptitude for encouraging and guiding using the word of God. And you can see how those go together. What do you call teaching plus exhortation? That's preaching. You have the gift of giving. The gift of giving is an aptitude and a deep desire to give financially at a high level. Some have said that the gift of giving also seems to involve the gift of getting. That you're one of those that just is able to make money and you give it away. There's the gift of leadership. Those who can inspire and organize and manage other people. How do you know if you're a leader? Because people are following you. That's it. And you have a gift for having people follow you. And then, of course, the gift of mercy. Those who have a particular soft touch with compassion and and with help. I had a seminary professor whom I love dearly, and he is a brilliant man. I don't think he's ever had a merciful day in his life, though. I was in a drugstore with the flu, feeling horrible, waiting for my medication, and he walked up looking socially uncomfortable because his gift of mercy wasn't firing on any cylinders whatsoever. And while I've learned much from him, he said, well, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I have the flu. And I listed all my symptoms. And this great theologian who has written books and is a hero of the faith said, well, good luck with that and walked off. <clears throat> his mercy wasn't his thing. I was praying for somebody with mercy. I didn't need teaching at that moment. And so understanding that we have pastors and teachers and evangelists who are gifts of Christ to the church and everyone in the church having these varied gifts such as service or teaching or exhortation and so on. What does this mean? Well, it means 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Did you catch that? The gifts don't belong to you. They are God's. You are here to steward them, to manage them. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now, what does all this mean? It means that every single Christian, every one of you, has been given the opportunity to fulfill a purpose in your life in the context of the church. Every single person. This is why at Grace Bible Church, we say that if you're a member, you're a serving member. There are no members and non-serving members. You're serving in some way, some to varying degrees. Some of you serve by simply being here and being an encouragement to others with your presence. Others serve at a a higher level, and that's fine. But Ephesians 2.10 is so encouraging to us. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Did you catch that? You were created to walk in those gifts, to walk in the works God would have you to do, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And not only does this give you a purpose, you now become the hands and the feet of Christ on earth. No wonder the Apostle Paul uses the famous metaphor for the church that we are the what? The body of Christ, working together. Now you might ask, but how do I know what I'm empowered to do? How do I know what my gifts are? It used to be really popular to have all kinds of spiritual gifts, tests and inventories. And I've gone down that road and I found it really useless because people take their spiritual gifts test. They get a result. They put it in a frame and hang it on the wall. That does no good whatsoever. So how do you know what you're empowered to do? Well, generally speaking, do what you're good at and what motivates you. That's how you know. It doesn't mean that we don't have an all-hands-on-deck attitude. Sometimes we do have to do things that aren't as motivating. 
But generally, you'll be more excited about those things in which you're gifted. It's really that simple. And so all through your life, you have eternal work with which to occupy yourself. And this is an empowered occupation. Was another part of the journey of the Christian life, another blessing. We'll call this one an overflowing anticipation. An overflowing anticipation. And turn with me to Romans chapter 15. In our little Bible study here. An overflowing anticipation in Romans 15. One of the great hallmarks of the Christian faith is the certainty of our hope. The certainty of our hope. When the Christian says, I have hope for my future, this is guaranteed hope. It's certified hope. And one part of our hope is provided for by the Holy Spirit in hoping in, looking forward to, anticipating, peeking ahead, if you might put it that way, at our future with Christ. We've already said that the Spirit provides a paradise registration this morning, that the sealing of the Holy Spirit guarantees that you are registered in the book of life when you arrive in heaven. But he also provides an overflowing anticipation, an ability to look beyond this life and eagerly anticipate our future in the kingdom of Christ. One of the main arguments of the book of Romans is Paul's declaration that both Jew and Gentile are saved by grace and are one people in Christ. And it doesn't negate the future national Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 makes that very clear. But Paul desires that the Roman Jewish Christians and the Roman Gentile Christians live in harmony together. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. He says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And now Paul explains that Christ came to save the Jews, which he calls the circumcised, and that Christ came to save Gentiles in order to glorify the mercy of God. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. But when is all this praising and rejoicing and extolling the name of Christ, when is this happening? Well, Paul quotes Isaiah 11 in the very next verse, here in verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. What is this speaking of? In the context of Isaiah 11, this is speaking of the future time when Christ is reigning on the earth over all the nations, all the nations of the world, and that is our hope. That's our hope, that there will be a day that we're in this, in a marvelous worldwide government run by the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that uh, Isaiah chapter 9 says the government will be on his shoulders. And We have that hope, but who gives us that hope? Who is it that fills us with that hope that makes us have this anticipation? Who is it that enables the Christian to do what the unbeliever cannot do, and that is to look beyond our own death with a smile, with giddiness, with anticipation, with eagerness. Only the Christian says, I can hardly wait to die. Who is it that enables the terminally ill believer to feel like she's finished the race and won the prize? 
Who is it that takes the, what the world sees as the end and clearly says it's the beginning? Who is it that makes an elderly Christian the ones we envy because they're closer to home? Who is it that makes a Christian end life with joy and delight and eagerness and relief and happiness? Who does this? Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We abound in this hope of a future kingdom. It means It's a word that means you have more than enough. There's plenty left over. It's overflowing. You don't have to say, well, I barely have enough hope to make it to the end of the life. This says that the Holy Spirit, through, through Him, we abound in hope. We have more than enough. I have been in hospitals more times than I can count with dying Christians that grab a hold of my hand and smile and say, I'm almost there. And there's an eagerness. And, and family members are saying, well, let's try this treatment and that one. And, and, the, and the poor believer in bed saying, no, don't do that. Why, why do I want more misery? I prayed with a man who was hours from death a few years ago and I held his hand and we prayed and he was so excited he said I'm almost there and he was abounding in hope he was overflowing he was the happiest person in the room but listen this is not just theoretical knowledge this isn't just theology if the Holy Spirit gives you an overflowing anticipation if you're aware of the impending end of your own life, the Holy Spirit also gives, and this is our last leg of the journey of the Christian life, the final blessing. We'll call this one a final preparation. A final preparation. This is not just theological theory. There's a genuine final preparation. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4. I want to show you this final preparation. All of 1 Peter is basically instruction to the people of God as to what to do in the face of suffering and persecution. And it surprises and delights us because Peter's solution to suffering and persecution is to be holy. Oh, what do I do when everything's hard and life is coming in on me and persecution is happening and the world is difficult and, and, and governments are oppressing Christians? What do I do? Peter says, chapter 1, Be holy. And all of 1 Peter is so intensely practical on how to be holy in your daily life. Now, I, mo- I read a moment ago to you 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, which outlines that we're to faithfully serve in the church during this life of suffering. That's part of being holy. But the fact is, is that because suffering has come, suffering is coming, if you're younger and you haven't had a major time of suffering in your life, could I say with a smile and a prayer that it's on its way? It will happen. The people of God need encouragement. We need the strength to endure. And so Peter explains where that encouragement and strength comes from. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
And now, empowered by the Spirit to face any trial, even up to death itself, we're given hope and preparation for whatever God may bring. Verse 19, the very end of chapter 4. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. But that's still sort of in the realm of theological theory that God the Spirit gives us strength as we suffer up to even and including death. But I want to take it a step further and talk about our actual deaths, the actual end of life and what the Spirit provides in anticipation of that moment. Is it just a comfort that you'll be okay? Is it the grace to be dignified in death? And that's possible, but the Spirit provides so much more than that. I want to return to a text we just went to a, a bit ago. Go back with me to Romans chapter 8, and we'll finish here. Romans chapter 8, Paul is speaking of our time of suffering, and he makes a comparison to encourage us. Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, you can't even say that the glories of our future with Christ will somehow make up for the suffering you've endured. It's bigger than that. He says you can't even say that. He's saying you can't compare them. The glories that you'll experience will so overshadow the pain of this life that the suffering isn't even worthy of mention anymore. I've heard the illustration that when you're a a child and you you get a shot and you don't understand what's happening and you you give that look of betrayal to your parents. You know, when when the needle goes in and you look like that, what are you doing to me? And there's that agonizing moment. And the illustration is, but the, the candy you receive afterwards more than makes up for that. No, Paul's saying you can't even make that comparison. That our suffering is so minuscule, so tiny, compared to the glories that you cannot compare them. There's not a qualitative comparison. And so now Paul explains that all of creation is waiting for the glory to be revealed awaiting the consummation of God's redemptive plan. Remember, creation has been subjected to the curse of sin because of mankind. It wasn't creation's fault. When you have a little dog or a a pet that dies, it wasn't because of its sin. It's because of yours. That little doggy didn't ask to live in a sinful world because he didn't have an ancestor named Adam who, who cast all of the human race into sin. It wasn't creation's fault. Verse 19 For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know that creation is corrupt. Creation is at war with us. It's trying to kill you, right? Why do we have pest control? Because we live in a fallen world. And you take these precious little creatures that God made and you smash them and you spray chemicals all over them because they're at war with you. And they're fallen because of you. And so what's creation waiting for? Creation waits for the the finish of God's redemptive plan for mankind so that creation can be set free from the bondage that comes because of the curse. 
And Paul continues to explain the curse of sin with this anthropomorphic illustration. He speaks of creation as if it's a person. The creation is just waiting and groaning like a mother in labor awaiting the arrival of a baby. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then he switches the illustration from creation to us. That not only is the creation groaning, but we're groaning. But we don't groan in despair. We don't groan in hopelessness. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we all understand this groaning. There's no explanation needed here. Life is painful. Life is filled with heartache. And to top it all off, our bodies are slowly breaking down no matter what we do. And so we groan. But how do we groan? Do we groan in despair? Do we groan in hopelessness? Not at all. Paul says we eagerly await our adoption, meaning the the consummation of salvation, the redemption of our bodies, our resurrected bodies in the presence of God himself. How is it that we're able to be eager quite literally for our own deaths? Because that will bring resurrection. Why is that? Because we are the first fruits of the Spirit. We are a people for the first time in all history, indwelt by the Spirit of God. And he gives us the ability, if I could put it this way, to groan heavenward. What does this mean? Remember a few verses later that the Holy Spirit groans in prayer on our behalf? We groan in this life. Our groanings in life are now represented by the deep groanings of the Holy Spirit. Our feeble and frail and faulty groanings are perfected in the groaning prayer of the Holy Spirit. And what does this prayer accomplish? It accomplishes a final preparation. A final ministry of the Spirit of God to you in this life is to give you a longing and a delight in the thought of leaving this life and going home to heaven. I have never heard a Christian, a true believer, at the end of life saying, oh, I wish I could just hang on for so much longer. No, because I've seen it with my own eyes. You've seen this too that the Spirit of God gives this final preparation, that it's time to go home. It's time. And so, should you be in, for example, a hospital room at the end of your life, don't view it as a hospital room. That is the gateway to heaven. And the Holy Spirit will help you. You will not fear. You will not be afraid. You will not feel hopeless. Yes, you will groan because you hurt and your body is, is dying And you groan, but you groan with a smile. And the Holy Spirit will give you this intense longing and desire to look heavenward. How glorious will that be? And so the ministry of the Spirit to you in your journey in the Christian life, he begins with a spiritual transformation at your regeneration. And he takes you all the way to final preparation. I don't know about you, but for me, there's no doubt This morning we began in Ephesians 1, 3. There's no doubt that God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every blessing given by the Holy Spirit, every blessing wrought by the Spirit in the heavenly places. And then in the heavenly kingdom, what will the ministry of the Holy Spirit be to you? The ministry of the Spirit continues. What happens in the future? 
that will be next week. And we'll look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the future because it gets even better. It's going to be astounding. Let's pray together and we'll look forward to that. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures here that tell us of these astounding blessings, spiritual blessings, blessings by the Spirit of God in the heavenly places in which the Spirit first opens our eyes to see Christ, opens our ears to understand the gospel, and opens our hearts to believe. He ministers to us and on our behalf all through our lives as our helper and counselor and advocate and friend. And all the way to the very end of life, giving us an anticipation, an overflowing anticipation and a preparation, a final preparation. Lord, I pray for each person hearing this message tonight that everyone who knows Christ would have great confidence and would have a smile that as heaven draws nearer, the Holy Spirit will minister to them all the way to the end. And then as we'll see next week, the ministry of the Spirit simply continues on into eternity. And Lord, for one who does not know Christ, the Spirit of God has not yet wrought that work of salvation. We pray that that would be the case. We pray that even now there would be stirrings in the heart and that there would be a yearning and a desire to bend the knee, to humble the heart, to confess sin, to repent of pride and arrogance, which is the root of all sin. And we pray, Lord, that even now the Spirit of God would take some hearing this message and would lead them to the cross of Christ and to true faith in Christ that the Spirit may begin His ministry in their lives as well. May we see the fruit of this. Lord, we spoke of the fruit of the Spirit tonight. May we bear the fruit of the Spirit. May we be those that show to one another love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. May that be our legacy, Lord. May we come to the end of our lives characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, known by the fruit of the Spirit by those around us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the good word of God which has revealed yourself to us. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.